Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about, I guess, what we've been thinking about, what we've been reading, what we've been digging into. Uh, John and I had a good exchange the other day, and uh, you're getting psyched about some stuff. What's... What, what, what? Yeah, this, little... <laughs> this book of Job thing like has completely caught me by surprise. So, yeah, interesting. <laughs> the, the the strange trail here is, you know, N.T. Wright, surprised by hope. Which, by the way, I know I mm. mentioned that I'm an on again, off again N.T. Wright reader. I'm about, I think I'm at chapter ten now. I'm having a little uh, discussion group with my parents. We're working through it together. It's been really really a really really great process in terms of j- just throwing different ideas around and i guess the short summary on surprised by hope is he the book starts off really strong but his message and delivery is getting really muddled at huh. least in like the nine chapters 9 and 10 and yeah. i'm also getting tired of his i have just he says this <laughs> It gets kind of old where he'll be like, well, you know, the answer to this situation or the conclusion on this is X, Where I, but I have discussed this at length elsewhere. And then he just drives on. <laughs> and so he starts sprinkling that around a lot. And it, it at first it's like, oh, okay, that's nice. But it starts to get kind of like something like you would say. Well, come on, cite your sources here. I mean, where, right, you know, right. I mean. You don't get a free pass just because you're N.T. Wright, especially being that for the three of us, this is the first book we've ever read that he's written. So yes, we don't know anything. He could be completely crazy and out to lunch. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, it's just interesting that some of it's repetitive. The book Mm -hmm. started off really, really strong and really, really clear and really, really like, oh, this is going to be really interesting. And then we've just kind of gone through the last couple chapters. I want to say it was eight and nine or nine and 10 where I was just like, what? What do you like? It was like it was so dense and so not clear that right. I kind of got to the end, and I was just like, I really don't have any idea what the point of this chapter was or what I was supposed to understand. And like I said, lots of sprinklings of go read this elsewhere. So anyway, that's uh-huh. my editorial comments on that so far. But we're yeah. not to the end of the book, right? That, well, good. I'm go ahead. I, no, I'm just glad you were able to do that with your parents, and that yeah, that must be a little bit of a. Like, I guess I never thought about it that way. Like, in other words, when he's putting in those comments, I, you know, I've, I've talked about this at length elsewhere. I would hope he'd at least give you the kind of, the nutshell. There's some footnotes, but there, I feel like there's an increasing reoccurrence of not footnoting and not, and you're just like, okay, well, it's nice that you have that all figured out, but like, how could I follow along in your thinking? Or do I just, in other words, it, it has this feeling of just take yeah. my word for it. I've, I've worked on this elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Which I can understand from your perspective. This is the first book. How do you kind of, you need a little bit more substance. It sounds like. Right. So I guess that's tied into, you know, in these conversations and to an earlier episode on doing your own work, I picked mm-hmm. up this, uh, chronological Bible. There's a little call out there on Job that it didn't quite wonder if it was true or correct. And you and I started throwing it around, and 
Yeah. Anyway, it's fascinating. So I'm like halfway through reading the book of Job. And then I was like, well, how about some commentaries? Where where can I go for more information on this? Like, Nice. And so I don't know. I feel my, like there's like kind of, I can't explain it. It's like this magnetic force is just kind of pulling me in. I'm just like, I just want to know more about this. this is interesting. This is raising all kinds of questions. This is like heavy, heavy, heavy on God's mm-hmm. sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we've talked about that here. Um, mm-hmm. hmm, this is interesting. What about this? What about that? And so it's just raised more questions and more curiosity. And so I've been looking. So I actually I was challenging you the other day on chat, you know. Okay, so pretend I want to go get commentaries on Job. <laughs> and I don't know you. <laughs> and I'm not at a church. Where do I get started? How do I know where to go? So I'm still waiting for that blog post that you're going to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that, that, that will be a challenge. No, I'm really interested. That's great that you're kind of picking through it. And, and it's going to be interesting to see, too, where the both of us go with it. Yeah, especially if you end up using it in your church group. That that could be interesting. So I was at the library yesterday. A lot of times I escape the house to work. You know, all I need is a Wi-Fi connection. and I can do my job on most days. So anyway, I was escaping the house to the library, and I said, the library, I was like, oh, I wonder if they have any books on Job. So I look in the catalog, and our library is pretty good about having Christian stuff. Hmm. And so this is fascinating. So I picked up a couple of books. One is, I'm curious if anyone else out there has read it. It's called The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. It's by mm-hmm. Peter Inns. Mm. And somehow this came up in the, I did, I think I did a catalog search for Job Bible, which is a tricky term because Job is job. And so you Uh, get all these books on how to find a job or whatever. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But anyway, that's a kind of a, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a fascinating book. It's, um, I'm a little bit in, interestingly enough, the people on the back cover, Rachel Held Evans has a little blurb, as does Tony Campolo, as does, as does Rob Bell. So it's, really? quite a, it's quite an interesting collection of people. So yeah. it's kind of a fun, humorous, somewhat sarcastic read. I'm only a few pages in. So anyway, throwing that out there if anyone else has read it. And then I tripped over. This is I'm looking forward to reading. To reading is It's called The Book of Job, When Bad Things Happen to a Good Person by Harold S. Kushner, who I believe is also famous for writing when bad things happen to good people. Mm-hmm, but this book is so. specific to Job. That's cool. And he's a, I believe he's a Jewish scholar. So uh, not from a Christian, uh, an even uh, the typical, yeah, not your, I guess, someone that really only is working with the Old Testament and not the Old Testament and the New Testament, which mm-hmm. would be most of everything else I'm reading or coming across. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know where this is going. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's just kind of, kind of caught me by surprise. It's like, how did I end up here? It's like, well, here's how I got here, and we'll just kind of keep seeing what I think. I'm really, I think this is the crux of it. I think I'm really attracted to this book because Job feels self-contained to me. Right. It feels like a topic that. You know, I can listen to my audio version of the Bible, of Book of Job. I could listen to it 20 times, and I've got the whole thing about Job. Mm-hmm. Where Compared to, like, 
where you look at one of the gospels or some of the stuff in other parts of the Bible where it's like, well, you read this and you got to look at this and you gotta look. like, in other words, it just, at least so far anyway, it feels to me like this book is very self-contained and that to me feels manageable and not as overwhelming as trying to delve into another book or another topic. So I don't know. I think that part has me encouraged too. Right. Interesting. Well, uh, that sounds really cool. How did the, I still don't understand how the Peter Enns book fit in though. It came up in the catalog search. <laughs> it just wow. came up in the car, in the, you know, I did the little search for Joe Bible and huh. it was one of the books listed. There, okay. There is a chapter in this book specific to Job and I guess that's how it mm-hmm. came up. But as I'm reading this book, this book is all about, you know, in fact, he refers to, he stole my term, you know, people use the Bible as a cookbook. Right. And this kind of manual, this magic manual on, you know, how to live our lives. And it, and, mm-hmm. he, and so he's very much pushing against that to say, no, this is a huge, broad, sweeping story mm-hmm. that, you know, related to your thing at church around questions, this might be valuable. Like, he's going after all these things like, you know, so how is it that, you know, God is all about love and life, and he completely destroys the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. How do you make sense of that? Mm-hmm. I mean, he basically is like, this is basically genocide in today's terms. Then God, God did this? How do you explain that? Some of it feels like maybe he's going a little bit too extremes. So he's basically picking up like every situation like that that he can find in the Bible and riffing on it in a different chapter. The chapters right. are... It's very readable. The chapters are somewhat short. Well, that, that sounds really interesting. In fact, when you pulled, when you mentioned that book, I, I'm, it, it's it's in my shopping cart. <laughs> no. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that sounds great. I mean, so, and I, I've been really just kind of, yeah, I guess excited by your excitement as you're getting into this, and something's kind of pulling you along or leading you along, or there's a trail there, maybe not fully visible yet, but. It's you, you seem really excited by the whole thing. Yeah, and I can't explain it. I'm sure there's people out there going, oh, yeah, he's starting to get it or something like that, which is fine. <laughs> but yeah, I can't. Because usually when I've tried to either tried or started and looked at a certain part of the Bible, it just runs mm. out of gas after a day or two. Right. It's just, there. you know, I'm always reading. I think I probably started right now. I'm probably in the middle of seven or eight different books. Ranging yeah. from, I mean, all kinds of crazy topics from, yeah, these books on Job, this Peter Inns book, uh, Navy SEALs, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, communication, business and productivity. I mean, I span the gamut. So even, you know, even the John Grisham book. I just finished one of those. It wasn't very good, by the way. So, yeah, I'm reading all kinds of different stuff. And so it's it's not infrequent that yeah i start some part of the bible and then it just becomes there's nothing enjoyable or intriguing or engaging about it and then eventually it just kind of falls by the wayside so yeah and this could very well take the same path who knows uh but it just i don't know there's something that feels a little bit different about it well i'm going to be interested to hear how the 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 project goes and the the, you know the trek goes with this yeah uh, yeah we'll, we'll keep everyone posted here i'm curious too what what's up with you i know you've been throwing me links to all kinds of different stuff from <laughs> I think you said you're reading a couple Ravi Ravi Zacharias books and I'm curious how the thing at your church went and yeah bring us up to speed 
Well, you know, um, one of our listeners, Amy, posted uh, a link to uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Uh, that was a little while back, and I managed to get one blog post out about it. But I um, and I, I'd kind of listened to uh, I don't know three or four of his uh, videos, uh, and then I've read uh, like pretty closely three or four of his uh, articles from his ministry website, like his, his stuff, not somebody else's stuff, but his stuff. And then I thought, oh, yeah, I, I want to I make sure I give him the, the fairest shake possible. So I thought, you know, he's got, a, I think, about seven or eight books out. I, I'm not going to read them all, but I, I picked up two of them. Uh, one of them I have right here. It's entitled Beyond Opinion, Living the Faith We Defend. And I think I got another one called Why... Why Jesus? Rediscovering His Truth in an Age of Mass-Marketed Spirituality. So that's one area of reading for me. Um, and I picked up a couple other books to go along with that. One is – this kind of pairs up with, I think, the Peter Enns book that you got. Um, this is called The End of Apologetics by Myron Penner. That's an interesting title. Yeah, it is. Like and, the end of apologetics as in it's – it's run its course and it's not pretty much what pretty much yeah i think that's where he's he's going with it um penner i came across penner he, he's actually an interesting fellow he was uh he's a phd he was teaching uh at a small place not far from where i live but he put together uh he edited a book on postmodernism i think it's called uh christianity and postmodernism something very general like that or something close to that but some of the contributors were huge people um he had uh kevin van hooser merrill westfall jamie smith and uh, these are these are big big names uh of christian scholars who are very conversant in everything to do with postmodernism so yeah i mean i think um for me, uh, I've always had a sense that something uh, – I, I just have not really been um, that well disposed to the whole apologetic um, enterprise. You know, um, I think a lot of what we're doing here, you know, on this podcast, at least what, what, what my focus is, we've talked about this metaphor of the table and there's a table in front of us and the table is full. The table represents the space for – basically discourse about Christianity, how we understand Christianity, how it's been explained within the church, how it's been explained from the church to those outside of it. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the byline for our podcast is diffusing destructive ideologies and unsnarling, you know, tangled ideas and considering love and truth within Christianity. And, and I think from my perspective and my experience, my studies, there's just been so much that I've come across that does seem either destructive or really tangled and s- In the apologetics sphere? Well, with Christianity in general, but I think the, the, the issue that I have with the apologetic perspective, I mean, there, there are a couple, and, you know, Peter Enns, I think, and maybe hitting on some of those, Myron Penner, from what I've read of the reviews of his book, and some of the content, you know, that you get sn- snippets of through Amazon, um, I think it's hitting on some of the same things. Um, and in, for me, you know, the, the, as I read, I've got Ravi Zacharias' book here, Living the Faith We Defend. And I just thought, wow, why is defend so large? What are you doing here? You know, that defense 
is your number one orientation. And that's just not been part of my reality at all. I think we uh, looked at an article. It wasn't Rachel Held Evans. It was um, uh, another author. I can't remember her name. And she was talking about being so prepared to defend her faith and going all through high school and really... No, I think that was her. Or that was the unlearning... Oh, no, it was unlearning youth group. Yeah, yeah. I'll put a link to that. I I can't remember the number off the top of my head. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's the title of the episode. Yeah, but her comment was along the lines of realizing that she had uh, completely, uh, you know... um, uh, given up so many possibilities in terms of relationships, in terms of engagement with people, because she had held this kind of notion that she, not that she, just that she had to defend something, but by corollary that she was going to be attacked, that she could anticipate and should anticipate this kind of uh, negative uh, adversarial sort of response when most people around her didn't care. And I think I think this is another big crux of it because, again, we've come into a this we're at a point in in, in I think in, in our history and culture at least in the Western world where Christianity is not so much you know it's not in terms of uh, the non-Christian world in, in the in North America let's say the biggest issue is 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 relevance in other words Christianity just isn't relevant so I mean you, you're not even dealing with uh, needing to inform people people already know. You're not going to find too many people who in the Western world say, Chris, oh, Christianity, I've never heard of that. What is that? So you're not really looking to inform people. And you, you're not really engaging with people who are, um, I, I don't know, looking for a way to find spirituality that might be some way related to Christianity, but they're, <clears throat> they've just got a hurdle or two that they can't overcome. I, I don't, that, that's not my, been my experience at all. And I remember mentioning to you, uh, John Van Sloten, this fellow who wrote a book called The Day Metallica Came to Church, and Metallica literally came to his church. He is here in uh, Alberta. He has a church in Calgary. He uh, was preaching through a number of uh, kind of series of uh, basically the gospel according to, and the gospel according to, you know, different rock groups. And he, he did Metallica. Metallica happened to be in town that day. And they said, can we come and can we bring our cameras? And he said, yes and yes. Out of that, he's got this book. But because of the book, he was invited to a conference uh, on atheism by atheists. And when he talked to them and he said, you know, what's the number one biggest sort of concern? What's, what's, your, what's your top sort of, when someone says Christianity, what's your response and, and how do you engage? And they said, what do you mean? You guys aren't even relevant. You're not even on the map. And so I, I think on the one hand, the apologetic, if you like enterprise is creating an enemy and an adversary where there really isn't one or maybe imagining one. Uh, I'm not saying that people aren't negatively disposed to Christianity, but I'm saying that coming at them with um, a focus on correcting them and convincing them is completely the wrong way to go. I think apologetics has always had this notion of defending the faith. Mm hmm. And being able to give an answer, because there's that Bible verse that talks about being able to give an answer, so we have to be able to give an answer. Yeah. Again, I, th- I think what we need to do, and, and, and things like, you know, Acts 17 with Paul and Mars Hill are used as these kind of archetypal models of how we should go about this process of this apologetic interaction, really. But I think what we've forgotten 
is that there are culturally relevant and culturally bound kind of content or criteria within the biblical text. And we are dealing in Acts 17 with a very specific cultural moment that simply does not exist in North America in, in, in the 2000s. And that is you've got a ton of people who haven't heard anything about this and they need to be told. Absolutely. And is telling, maybe is part of telling, you know, getting into discussion, dialogue, potential debate? Yeah, I think so. But when you've got people who are already overly informed, they have too much information. Now, you might say, well, gee, look at the view of Christianity that most of these people have. It's flawed or it's, it's, it's partial. Okay. But as soon as I tell somebody I'm a Christian, they already know everything about me. Which is why I never lead with that. Never, ever lead with that. I had a discussion with a musician last night and uh, a fantastic pianist. And, um, you know, we began talking about the way that um, music can evoke different things within us. And I, and I, you know, for the first time I was listening to him do this jazz piece and I'm not a big jazz person, but all of a sudden he had this melody that I knew. And in the melody, in with the melody, there's this kind of consonance and dissonance as he's mixing time signatures and he's doing things. Uh, so he's creating structure through that. And I can sort of anticipate where he's going. And then he, he changes things. And so he's breaking that anticipation. And he's also kind of coming back sometimes to the same time structure or, or beating that time structure out in different ways. And it was very complex and interesting. And I realized that when I'm listening to, to, to pop music, the things that get evoked within me are emotions or ideas. But when I was listening to this guy, I was get, the, what was getting evoked were experiences and, I, and he was playing, so I was, I was feeling very happy as he was playing this final piece. You know, it was an hour and a half concert. And um, I started remembering great wine that I had had or a really nice, you know, meal that I'd had or a great experience with a friend who's been dead for, you know, I don't know, eight, nine years now and other things like this. But... Maybe I'm, I'm losing the point of, of the tie-in there with that. But, but that in that, well, no, the, the point is this. In that communication, we were two human beings conversing about what it is to be human in a given context. In this case, him playing the music, me as a listener experiencing the music, listening to the music, and, and through that, having experiences evoked. And there were some parts and some topics that just naturally led into spirituality. And that was fine and cool. But I think the apologetic enterprise is really, in a, in a, to a large extent, is creating its own audience. If I go into a hornet's nest and start poking it, I'm going to get a lot of hornets coming out of me. You go in and you start talking with, with people who are avowedly atheist and you tra- tra- start trying to, quote, change their minds. The... Uh, I, I see that as being a pointless enterprise, absolutely pointless, because I'm not engaging with them as a full self, which is exactly the type of self that the New Testament calls me to be. Well, and are they even open to having their minds changed? Well, that's it. You know, and in some cases, you know, Rabbi Zacharias, for example, does certainly does recount some situations where he's, he's uh, invited to do this or that. He is requested to come and speak on this or that. 
you know, and I, again, I, I don't know to what extent, obviously, uh, Ravi Zacharias would not have, he'd be out of a job if everybody were a Christian. He's an apologeticist, right? <laughs> he'd be out of a job, essentially. And so I don't think he's coming only to speak to Christians. So an invitation doesn't mean, hey, come to speak to me and my Christian friends about stuff we already believe, right? But on the, on the other hand, I, I'm not going to sort of, I'm not pegging on to him or anyone else in particular that they're just, you know, randomly searching out people on the streets or going to organizations that are avowedly, I don't know, atheistic or, or what have you, uh, you know, ill-disposed to Christianity in whatever way and going in there and trying to, you know, slug it out with them. But yeah, I just do think that the the approach itself is really problematic, and I think within a um, well, I won't I won't go any further down. And part of that's the research I've got to do still about some of the things in particular that are troubling me. So your sense or concern is that the trajectory that the apologetics crowd is on is a path of irrelevance or missing the mark or what? I think they've misconceived what's out there. I mean, okay, so <laughs> your, your question is kind of calling out where I'm going with some of the research, but one of the things that I found very troubling is that all of these folks are extremely, extremely concerned, and that's a light version. I would say they are, they're very adversarially disposed, remarkably adversarially disposed to what they call postmodernism. And the more I read Rabbi Zacharias on this, listen to him on this, you know, reading both his books and his articles, um, his conception of postmodernism is at best limited and partial, if, if not actually flawed. And some of the conclusions wow. that he's drawing, <laughs> well, okay. I'll come back to Myron Penner in the book he authored with, uh, you know, Van Hooser, Westfall and Smith, I've got Jamie Smith's, this is another book I'm reading through, Who is Afraid of Postmodernism, you know, kind of after Virginia Woolf's, you know, Who's Afraid of, well, no, I've forgotten the last word of that Virginia title. Woolf, isn't it? Who's Afraid of Virginia <laughs> Woolf. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, I don't maybe know. That's, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's not by her, but her name's in the title. So he's got Who's Afraid of Postmodernism, and, and you know, I'm reading through that, and I've done a, a lot of work on this subject, both for, you know, at Labrie and then uh, for my uh, graduate work. Yeah, I, I, th I think th there's a really reductionistic approach that's being taken by these folks. And I think that ultimately what's at stake for a lot of the apologeticists is that their approach is really, really focused on knowledge, right? I mean, what do you know? What do you believe? What do you consider to be true? And What's your, you know, the other word uh, technically for that is epistemology. And so there's this, uh, whether you're an evidentialist, a propositionalist, uh, a classical kind of uh, apologeticist, or whether you're coming from a reform perspective with reformed epistemology, these are kind of the four major groups that, as far as I'm aware of, knowledge and epistemology are at the fore. And I guess I'm going into I'm going down a little bit of a philosophical trail here with you, but one of the things that came about in the 1920s, so we're going back a little ways here, maybe a hundred years almost. At the end of the 1920s, as Martin Heidegger wrote his Being in Time, and um, Heidegger, Heidegger convinced pretty much everybody that we don't start with knowledge; we start with being. 
I'm born and come into the world and I learn about things like hammers and nails and chairs and bowls and spoons by using them, not by understanding them, by using them, by observing others using them. And before I ever have an opportunity or a need to reflect on them, I know what they are in a sort of understanding way by having engaged with them in accord with their purpose and my need for them. And so uh, folks like Ravi Zacharias still hold on to an older way of thinking that I, in my opinion, both uh, in in my, you know, I don't want to say professional opinion, but in my, in my learned opinion, you know, insofar as I have studied these things, uh, this just doesn't fly anymore. And I think you see some of the evidence of this in terms of the postmodern turn. And you see a much greater emphasis, uh, for example, uh, on, on real embodied, um, if you like, proof of something. So when we, when we start coming at these ideas of, you know, what is Christianity, et cetera, et cetera, and we're talking to someone, you know, who's uh, at least, I would say, a 40 or less, 40 years old or less, we're going to have a much harder time because the tables and the, the stakes, if you like, have changed. Um, we're no longer about trying to prove something rationally. But first of all, you've got to show that you're a real human being, that you understand what it is to be a human being in the world, that you're not some sort of phony two-dimensional plastic person. And yeah, the, the, the scope of the discussion is very, very large. But I think my perspective at this point is that instead of starting off with this tell and show approach that the Apostle Paul used in Acts 17 with Mars Hill, you know, I've got to tell these people. I've got to tell them about Jesus because they don't know. I've got to tell them about Christianity because they've got no concept. So he's telling all these people, he's giving them, literally giving them information they do not have. We're now uh, in a... Sorry, go ahead. No, so I see where you're going. So in other words we've been running the same playbook for thousands of years and maybe the those plays are not as as effective or as relevant as they once were absolutely because you're dealing with a with a, with a population that's not only saturated so in terms of information they're saturated they're oversaturated fine you want to argue that they've got misconceptions no doubt uh, quite frankly no doubt some people in the church a lot of people in the church have misconceptions too um, that's my perspective. And I think that's something we've been foc- I've been focusing on through the podcast. I think there's an interesting tie in here with Inz's book, because I've been flipping through it as, as you were talking, huh. B- related to Christians themselves and then outside. So I want to quote this. So this is on page three of The Bible Tells Me So. Okay. The Bible isn't going anywhere. Christians have been reading it ever since there have been Christians. It remains the way for Christians today to learn about God the go-to source book for spiritual comfort, guidance, and insight. Count me among them. I am a Christian, and the Bible has shaped and continues to shape my life and faith. I love the Bible because I meet God in its pages. I teach the Bible because I want to help others meet God too. So what's the problem? Many Christians have been taught that the Bible is truth downloaded from heaven, God's rule book, a heavenly instruction manual. Follow the directions and out pops a true believer. Deviate from the script and God will come crashing down on you with full force. 
anyone challenges this view, the faithful are taught to, quote, defend the Bible against these anti-God attacks. Problem solved. That is, until you actually read the Bible. Then you see that this rule book view of the Bible is like a knockoff Chan- Chanel. <laughs> How do you say Chanel? 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 Chanel. Okay. Then you see that this rule book view of the Bible is like a knockoff Chanel handbag. Fine as long as it's kept at a distance away from curious and probing eyes. What I discovered and what I want to pass along to you in this book is that this view of the Bible does not come from the Bible, but from an anxiety over protecting the Bible and so regulating the faith of those who read it. Why do I say this? The Bible tells me so. I'll tell you my story soon, but in sum, I would say, when you read the Bible on its own terms, you discover that it doesn't behave itself like a holy rule book should. It's definitely inspiring and uplifting. It wouldn't have the shelf life it does otherwise. But just as often, it's a challenging book that leaves you with more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, I thought that tied in in terms of yeah, what you were saying. Yeah, well, that is true, you know, in the sense that we've, we've developed all of these, you know, infallibility and inerrancy and all of these discussions that are really no longer, I mean, in, in, some, in some small segments, uh, maybe some of them aren't so small. But in, in certain cloistered segments of Christianity, these ideas still hold purchase. Whereas in the academic world, for example, they are long gone. We are, for the most part, realizing that we are interpreters. We are all always interpreting things. And this is part of what Heidegger was getting at in terms of, you know, existence comes first. Being in the world comes first before knowing the world. And in a similar way, when we come back to Christianity and we think about what it is to be Christians with others who are not Christians... At this time in history, that supersaturation of information, misinformation included, means that we don't tell and then show. Because in addition to being saturated with information, we are saturated with, 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 one of the, with the issue that I think, one of the two, two or three issues that is really key within postmodernism, and that is the problem of evil. And I see that nowhere in the writings of some of these people, some of these apologeticists. They're just, they're just not tracking it. And, and you, you might say, well, postmoderns aren't, aren't always talking about the problem of evil. It's, it's, it's in them. It's in their blood. And that's why we have this phenomenon of suspicion. And so if I already know basically the story you're telling me, but that story has implications in terms of your life and how you live it and those of, those, those of others who follow this way of being or thinking. Well, and their interpretations. Yeah. And yet I see, the, I see how their interpretations perhaps favor themselves, how they somehow manage to make themselves look good when they're not, how they manage to say, say that they're doing this and following that when in fact they're not. And so we don't need to show, pardon me, to tell and then show. We need to show and then tell. So the apologetic enterprise is, first of all, living out what it is to be a Christian in front of people in such a way that we can regain the legitimacy that we've lost because the church has lost so much legitimacy. And it also happens to correlate well with the, with, with, with the emphasis in, in John's writings, both the epistle and the gospel. You know, they will know you by your love. The Christian love, and I think Enns talks about this, I believe Myron Penner goes into this as well, that the communities, Christian communities that display love for one another as Christians, that is that is perhaps the most compelling, if you like, introduction. It may not give you all the content you need. 
And again, maybe a lot of content that non-Christians have about Christianity is, is partial or some of it's erroneous. That's fine. But you are never going to get to the place where you get a hearing if you come in with the gospel message. You know, when you and I were at Labrie, for example, how long would you have stayed if the first thing that happened to you at a meal discussion was somebody telling you about the gospel and why you needed it? <laughs> yeah, I already knew. And it, what I had, at least what I knew or what I'd been told hadn't worked. Yeah. So them telling me again would have just made me angry. Yeah, and you would have packed your bags and headed out. I would have had packed my bags and headed out. And quite frankly, uh, looking at a place like Swiss Libri and seeing the, so seeing when I was there and hearing continually and ongoingly the stories of, if you like, success or people themselves categorizing their experiences as successful, insofar as they've been able to make headway towards understanding their faith, they've most, for the most part, they, you know, people are, alienated from Christi Christianity, they find bridges and pathways back towards it, if not to it. And yet that whole disposition at Labrie is completely antithetical to the apologetic approach. It just does not in any way reflect the kind of orientation that I read when I read Ravi Zacharias and others. So so yeah, that's been a lot of my reading lately. <laughs> Sorry, did I just totally dismantle that? <laughs> yeah, we'll have to... Brush that off. <laughs> no, 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 no. Didn't mean to sound quite so flippant. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I, I was, I was laughing because I was like, "Oh my gosh, you're just getting started on this." We'll have to definitely check back and see, <laughs> see, see where this ends up. Now, does this tie in at all with your church discussion group, or are those separate topics? And either way, what's going on there? Well, I think it does. We are, we're heading into discussing the whole idea of opinions and what are opinions. And there was an article put out in the arts section of the Houston, one of the, one of the Houston uh, paper in Houston. I'm not sure what it was. And, it, and the, the title of the article was put out, I think on the 23rd of July and it read, um, it's not, uh, it's not your opinion. You're just wrong. And it was talking about <laughs> okay. how people would essentially use the the term you know they would they would uh, almost like a comeback well that's my opinion and somehow you know you can have a misunderstanding you can have a misinterpretation but you can't have a misopinion right an opinion is an opinion whether you agree with it or not and so i think the the thrust of that newspaper article was hey you know what opinions can be wrong like understandings and interpretations and etc. They can be wrong. And so I think we're going to look at that. And then we're, I hope this isn't jumping into the deep end. I, I just, you can actually, you're I good at your, that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Uh, I have never known you to do anything half-heartedly. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to throw them too far. Like I'm not going to go into the whole apologetics thing or anything like that. I don't want to do that. But I picked up a book by D.A. Carson, which I've been meaning to pick up for a while. Carson um, he's a more conservative scholar, but I think he's very thorough. I th uh, his background is out of Dallas, I believe. But he wrote a book back in the 90s, which is still quite a good book, called Exegetical Fallacy. So I picked that up. And just to sort of look at some of these ideas and begin getting into that, I thought about going into your first chapter of Job. So after we discussed the article, just, just kind of asking people, so tell me this story of Job. How does it go? 
and seeing what they tell us and then getting them to read it. So tell me first, read it second, like right there, and we'll read it all together and then we can kind of reflect on so how how accurate was your approach and you know, in other words, if if you for example, your view was, you know, it starts off with Satan comes to God and says, you know, Job's not so good and not as good as you claim and then God says okay and God does a whole bunch of things and you know, in other words, is their perspective their well that part of that's not even accurate no well no it's not, not that's <laughs> i was like wait a minute <laughs> yeah right no, so cause, uh, yeah because god asked satan hey what do you think of job oh well that's cool i didn't remember that part i'm flipping there right now because i know that you know it's not as we discussed it's not God who acts against Job, but but Satan. No, the the that's true. Have the, you cons- the angelic board meeting was in session, and God says to Satan, "Hey, what do you think of this guy, Job?" Yeah, very true. There, I'm, I'm reading that. Have Which you is considered- fascinating. Satan doesn't start it. No. Anyway, no. I don't. I'm not derailed wherever you were going, but no, not at all. So I was thinking about. I will start with that article about opinion. It was posted on a Facebook group that most of these people, uh, almost all of them are connected to. So it's probably not going to be a new article to anyone and, and it probably, you know, we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But uh, And then either going to Job or this is the deep end thing. There's a, a book that someone pointed out to me, actually the only time I've ever had a colleague talk about uh, – religion and it's a book by uh, a fellow named Joseph Atwill it's called Caesar's Messiah the Roman conspiracy to invent Jesus and um it's enormously clever it's enormously clever and it's one of those books that totally dismantles christianity and gives you everything you'd want to know if you're an atheist or if you're if you want to investigate it if you're a seeker let's say to, to, to persuade you um, that Christianity is not true. And so it's one of those things where this is the deep end. I, I, I've gone through and, and, and it kind of grabbed me and I said, what? What are you talking about? How is all this? Blah, 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 blah. And then as I went through and spent more time and spent more time and started looking and looking and digging and et cetera, um, I mean, I won't give away the punchline from my perspective, but essentially – the book does not deliver um, what it claims to, which is the whole idea that Christianity is is this uh, um, big conspiracy uh, created by the Romans and and um, but but it's got some fantastic um, information. It seems very scholarly, and it's got a whole bunch of things going for it. And so I wanted to throw that to the group or at least the beginning section of it, not the whole book. But it, my copy hasn't come in from Amazon yet, so I can't really, you know, I was going to photocopy the first couple of pages, pass it out and say, what do you think about this? How would you begin to approach something like this? So. Interesting. Well, yeah, I just, like, it's a real test case, right? It's, it's, it's not like, I'm not giving them chewing gum. I'm, I'm giving them <laughs> a really, but, but for some people, that I know that that type of thing can be really unsettling. You know, so what do you do with that? Do I, do I, do I, Give it to them and say, by the way, 
I encountered this and I'm still a Christian, or by the way, we're going to show why this book isn't right. And I just, I just don't like Unsett- coming at it that way. Unsettling in this, from the standpoint of you're in a Christian setting and you're not reading a Christian book. No, well, it's a very, uh, it dismantles Christianity and does so extremely effectively until you know how to approach it and you can see where the difficulties are with the book and where the inconsistencies are. So it comes off as a very compelling presentation. Extremely. Unless you know where some of the cracks are in their presentation. Yes, yes. Yeah, extremely compelling. And so I just don't know, and I know none of these folks... That sounds real. I, I keep saying it's interesting. I don't know. I'm just like, wow. I wish I could be there for a, just oh, to well, just to be a fly on the wall and just or participate. It sounds really interesting. Well, I'm gonna I want to send you when I get it and I scan it in. Uh, I'll send you the first couple pages of the book because it'd be great to have have your perspective too on you know what would you do with this? How would you kind of engage with this? Um, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah, another time we're going to have to talk about this difference in the whole, the whole the digging into this apologetics piece. Uh, it's been fascinating to look at the differences between the presuppositionalist apologetics, uh, uh, evidentialist, classical, and then you know the reformed epistemology. Oh, you'll have to define all those big words. You know, next time yeah. maybe too, it might be valuable. I was going to interject earlier and I didn't. Maybe even don't do it now, but define like what is postmodernism? Yeah, that term is thrown around a lot. Yeah, if someone were to ask me what exactly does that mean, mm-hmm. I could probably give some definition off the top of my head that would probably be half right, if that. Right. Um, but yeah, I'd love to. If we're going to go there, I or delve into these, I think we should start by defining some of these terms. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. Notes and links for this episode are at untanglingchristianity.com. We welcome your thoughts and comments both at the website and our private Facebook group. If you'd like to join the private Facebook group, let us know your email address in the sidebar of the website to receive notes and links for each episode, and we'll send you an invite to our private group. Or you can send your thoughts or requests to join the group by email. Send those emails to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.